0: This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? I'm Greg Dalton and today on Climate One we're talking about climate on our brains. There is abundant evidence that our fossil fuel driven lifestyles are frying the planet and driving weird weather. People are experiencing everywhere. Yet public concern about climate disruption has been declining in recent years and even people who are alarmed about it are not doing as much as they could. Over the next hour we'll look at the psychology, language and social cues that determine how people respond to human caused climate disruption. We also will talk about how people assess the risks that carbon pollution presents to their personal well-being, their children, their community, and the economy. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have two guests. Dacher Keltner is professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, where he studies the social function of emotion, power and social behavior, and negotiating morality. George Marshall is author of Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change, He's a former campaigner for Greenpeace and now a communications consultant based in Britain. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you you for coming. Uh, George Marshall, do you recall when you first realized that climate change, climate disruption was a serious issue? And did you see it as a threat or an opportunity?
1: You know, I'm so glad you put the, the, the question that way, because built into that question is the idea that there is a, a moment at which you, you you have this this point of awareness. And I think for many people there is. I mean, in, in uh, religious terms, people would call it a, an epiphany. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the way of what I talk about um, in the book is that we... We're so used because it comes from the language of science to think of climate change as being uh, just coming to us in the form of information that we somehow acquire as if by some osmosis, and it just sinks in. And when people don't get it, we just think, well, we just need to throw more information at them. So for me, yes, I, I did indeed. I uh, in 1988, I went to uh, a small, a small public meeting. Um, I was trapped, living with my parents, actually, trying to trying to get out and find a life for myself. And I went along, and it was just. Uh, Just in the small town where I lived in Britain, there was a public meeting, and I left absolutely shocked and devastated. The other thing, which was remarkable about it, is how quickly that feeling passed. But I'd look around and go, this is really serious. I'd talk to people, and no one seemed to know anything about it. There was no interest. Everything was going on as usual. And, um, And then it was another 12 years before I started seriously working on it. So I think climate change is... When it's a challenge or an opportunity or whatever, I think it's very much what we, what we make of it. But the thing that I take from the lesson is that, that how we see it is very much in terms of what we're picking up from the people around us. We can feel whatever we like about it. But, but it's, if you're not getting that support from the wider society outside, it's very hard to hold that conviction. Decker Keltner, did
0: you come to it intellectually or emotionally? Do
1: you remember? Well, I think I'm a
2: testimony to what we're learning in the social sciences, which is that this, this issue really came to me emotionally. And mm-hmm. as somebody who studies different species to make sense of where we came from evolutionarily, what really hit me early was the loss of species, and in particular you know, the reducing populations of great primates uh, in Africa. Um, and that spoke to me really personally. And then I think the information and the facts and the kinds of things that George represents in his book became ways of making
1: sense of, of that initial emotional reaction. One of the things which is a real challenge of climate change is that it, as a narrative, it does not have an enemy with the intention to cause harm. None of us, none of us seek to cause harm through the things which cause climate change, which is living our lives, or we're driving the kids to school, or we're having a holiday, or we're you know, visiting our, our, our sick sister or something. There's, there's, there's no intention. In fact, there's often an intention to do good. So when we say that these things are harmful, it creates a lot of... A, a, it's a heavy emotional load, and it, it creates a lot of tension for people. So in the absence of an enemy with intention to cause harm, I'm afraid that we know for the way that our brains deal with narratives that missing parts of narratives are like a vacuum that seeks to be filled. And therefore, indeed, what happens is that people slot an enemy into that narrative. They will bring one in. On my own side, on the environmental side, I think we have overemphasized the role of... Uh, the disinformation campaign or the uh, the oil oligarchs funding uh, misinformation. I'm not saying these aren't serious problems, but I'm saying I think we've done that because we're so drawn towards enemies. Um, I think we've been quite fast to demonise our companies which are doing some seriously negligent things. But that is also a way of playing down our own culpability in this through the way that, the, that we live and, of course, people on the right respond to all of that by slotting people like me into the narrative, making us into the enemy. And, therefore, we just get into this head-to-head of one set of enemies against another. Again, as I said, but the narrative structure we create around climate change becomes the issue. And that becomes the thing which people say, I believe in climate change or I don't believe in climate change. It's the story that's been built around it and there's lots of environmental organizations their business model and
0: their funding is often based on having an enemy you know these, write us a check and we'll we'll fight these demons we'll fight these bad guys right i mean yes isn't... and
1: i and i don't want to but i don't want to put that down either i understand that's not a, just a cynical exercise in fundraising that's a, that's a genuine attempt to make sense of a very very complex issue by creating points of pressure where you think you can, you can make change i mean that is the nature of That is the nature of campaigning. You can't go after everybody all the time, so you try and see where you can do it. But as I say, the the danger is, however, that that then becomes the focus of the issue. And it's particularly dangerous in that I think we have this extraordinary partisan divide on this where climate change has become so identified with your political identity that uh, when we play these enemy games, we are just reinforcing the divide, which really shouldn't be there. We really, this should be an issue where we're finding common ground between people of different political worldviews. But of course, if we keep saying, well, this is the enemy and you are the enemy, then of course people who identify with that side are going to say, no, you're the enemy. And you just, you know, you lose sight of the story.
0: Gets to tribes and social cues. Decker Keltner,
2: you want to comment on that? Is yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, one of the really interesting challenges that George poses in his book is what kind of narratives can we construct about this issue to. Hmm. To kind of bridge the partisan divide. And what we're learning from the social sciences, first of all, that is a really important piece of advice because we have this storytelling brain that really is moved by stories, even in some studies, more than facts and hard statistical data, which people don't intuitively grasp. Really, another interesting issue to think about, and there's recent social scientific work on this, is that a lot of the classic narratives about climate change have to do with harm and care, right? We want to take care of vulnerable species or take care of the environment or the loss of uh, um, parts of our ecosystems. And that narrative is probably appealing to this audience, right, and to, in general to one side of the partisan divide, liberals. Uh, And there's recent work in moral psychology showing that um, climate deniers will actually be more moved by arguments and, and advocate for policies if the issue is framed in terms of purity, which is a very compelling moral frame for uh, people of a more conservative political persuasion. So if you talk about climate change in terms of the degradation of water, the, the, the pollution, if you will, and, and couch it in those terms, you actually see shifts. You see a, a closing of that partisan divide, which I think uh, it, it's a part of a challenge of your
1: book is to think about sort of tailored narratives that will help the cause. I mean, here's, a, here's another example, as as, as we know, daqui, from, from the um, from the research, but another area which is a, a, a difference in in the this is the kind of moral foundation theory from between left and right is attitudes towards authority, right. and authority is also a very powerful um, is a very powerful frame for people of the right. So if we if we run campaigns that say climate change is the opportunity to overthrow the social order, we're immediately, pl- we're right. immediately working <laughs> against a set of frames of these. Yep. On the other hand, if we have an argument that climate change is a chance to actually create a sense of common purpose where we can actually work together and we can have a much stronger sense of, um, of value, if we build, for example, on the values of what brings us all together, we're speaking much more strongly to that sense of, of social security, which is so important yep. to people. Yep. Right. Yep. Absolutely. But
0: isn't there a, um, a lot of companies, a lot of powerful interests make their money from extracting and burning fossil fuels? So no. aren't they inherently institutionally, perhaps individually, threatened by saying that that has to change? George Marshall?
1: I think climate change is deeply threatening. I think that that is, of course, a reason why, uh, why people have a right and, and, and some very powerful economic interests are, are deeply challenged by it. Um, there's no question about that. I mean, there is a, uh, these divides don't appear just because of the words that people use. They appear because climate change is fundamentally threatening. That's why I said that's why environmentalists and, and people of the left have been much more keen to pick up, the, yeah. pick up the issue. That does not mean, however, that we cannot find ways of talking about it which speak to common purpose rather than some kind of uh, head-to-head battle. Uh,
0: there's a quote uh, in the book that... Uh, from Carl Jung, um, if there's an enemy, it is really our shadow, our internal greedy child whom we yeah. don't wish to acknowledge and who compels us to project our own unacceptable attributes onto others. So are we the enemy? Are we demonizing oil companies, but it's really some shadow of ourselves, George Marshall? We'll get Dacher Keltner on that. Yeah.
1: Um, the, uh, Bill Blakemore, the, um, the correspondent for ABC, um, actually had a very nice way of doing it. He's thought about this a long time. And he said, you know, we often talk about climate change as the enemy in the room. And he says, well, it's the, it's the enemy we're inside. We're in the middle of this thing. Yeah. In that we are all in various ways uh, challenged by this and, it's, uh, and, and we're all in various ways involved with it. Of course, we're all in various ways finding collective alibis for it. And I think that's also part of a process which feeds us to point in other directions. Um, But, you know, there's a a much more positive spin on this, which is to say, yes, we can can develop and grow as people. We can actually look at things which are really important to us in terms of our social relations and the way we live and our collective happiness out of a low-carbon society.
0: So, Decker Geltner, I want to get you on that conflict. If people feel guilty, like, I'm part
1: of the problem,
0: it's easier to just ignore the problem than to look at that.
2: Yeah, it is. But, you know, and and just to reflect on what George was saying, I mean, I I think we are... um, Hesitant to approach the problem because it taps into so many of our basic habits and tendencies, right? To get into a car, to search for consumer products that'll make us happy, and the like. Um, but but I also feel that there's a positive spin here, which is that uh, yeah, we have these self-interested tendencies that can sort of feed into these social practices and economic practices that are bad for the environment. But we also have a lot of new science suggests an amazing capacity to sacrifice, right? Yeah. And yeah. we know. Uh, shifts in social behaviors that benefit others uh, from a lot of different studies are actually good for your health. They're good. They activate reward circuits in the brain. We can detail that if you like. And so I think if we can kind of rethink the enemy that we're trapped in and think Mm -hmm. about pathways out through these these more nobler tendencies, uh, I think there's a lot of movement to be had. So I don't think it's inevitable at all.
0: So that sounds like living like a European: smaller house, smaller car, lower right. income, but they have they're happier people. Is, is that true, George Marshall? Whether or not <laughs> you lot, are that's... European on the panel, whether, whether it, you're, you're, you might be European for the next couple, the couple months or years, but yes. You know,
1: I, um, you know, I I live in a I live in a small I live in a small community in a in a rural part of Wales in, in Britain. Um, by all of the social indices, one of the happiest places in Britain. It is not. It is not one of the richest. The most important thing there is a sense of social identification that people have, with a, a cultural identification and a sense of place, not the hypermobility people live there their, their whole lives. And I do think that's what people are yearning for yeah. and, and what people most desperately need. So, yes, it, it's, it's, fairly, it's fairly obvious that, in Ameri- in, that America has a much higher level of energy use and resource use, but it isn't measurably happier than Europe. Yeah. It's also true, actually, that in terms of measurements of collective happiness but these peaked in the early 70s yeah. if we were to think of if we if we were to recognize but actually if we were to go back to the living standards of the early 70s but also to the, to the social systems that went with it but we would have gone especially with modern technology we would go a very very long way towards dealing with this climate change problem so you know people have this idea that it's all about going and living in a cave I I don't. <laughs> but of course, that's a generated narrative, isn't it? Yeah. That's that's like a, that's a way of yeah. putting the whole thing down and demonising it. But actually, the fact is that there are ways we can reinforce our own communities, and that we can much, we can much be much stronger with that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you're just joining us on Climate One today, we're talking about climate psychology, and messaging, language. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are George Marshall, author of "Don't Even Think About It: Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change," and Dacher Keltner, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. Let's talk about risk. People interact with risk in all sorts of ways in their daily lives from getting in a car, usually now social norm is putting on a seatbelt. When I grew up, I never wore a seatbelt, uh, smoking, etc. cetera. So uh, George Marshall, talk about risk in daily life and also how we process the risk of something yeah. as big as climate.
1: Yeah. We, we are, I mean, there is this sense that, that we are wired in various ways to respond to different, different triggers. To, to respond to in terms of risk or certainly a sense of threat. Uh, and there's a, there's a great deal of research on that. We certainly know that what psychologists would call salience is a very huge part of it, something which is happening now, something we can see very, very clearly, um, something, again, as a, to go back to the earlier point, that is a, caused by a visible enemy and a known enemy of an intention to cause harm. These things immediately are completely compelling to us. We're correspondingly not well set up for responding to issues that do not carry those tags. So things which are, appear to be distant, things which are distributed, things which appear to be in the future, uh, things which do not have clear enemies. So th- there is, a, there is a, a, a problem with this that we are, that the kind of, of issues that we are set up to respond to through our long, long development and history are not well met by issues like climate change. And again, this is why things like narratives are so important, because this is the way that we give it a shape and form of a threat. But this is also potentially potentially where the risk is. But I would add, of course, something that we do is that we're actively seeking to avoid it. So one of the things that we do is that we quite deliberately construct narratives around it which make it fall against those biases. We're, we're, we're pretty smart on this. So. Yeah. Although climate change has been underway now for 100 years, it's very clearly underway, but there there are major climate shifts happening, the vast majority of people are persuaded that climate change is something far in the future. 10% of people in America, only 10% think that climate change will seriously affect them. Over 80% think it'll seriously affect future generations. So there's... there's, And that obviously includes a number of people who don't think it's happening at all. It's most peculiar. It's it's a way of... It's a way of... It's a way of responding and shaping the things so that we know that there are issues we respond badly to in terms of risk, so we're deliberately shaping it in a form which is going to fail against those very biases. Yeah, Decker Keller Yeah, you know, I mean, this is such a
2: an, an interesting place to draw on the contemporary neuroscience, right? So, what we have in our brains is a, a, a part of our nervous system called the amygdala, which triggers stress and cortisol and, and fight-or-flight behavior, and and that's been crafted by tens, hundreds of millions of years to respond to what George is describing, which is immediate threats, probably dangerous objects, predators out in the environment, and not these abstract, long-lasting events that involve complex systems like climate change. But what I would argue is that there are other parts of the brain, the old brain, that will drive the right kind of behavior that are capable of being activated by these arguments. Things like uh, what E.O. Wilson talked about, the great uh, naturalist at Harvard that we have this love of nature and other species mm-hmm. that has a lot of deep evolutionary roots that probably is draw, driving a lot of the kind of behaviors that are good for the environment, so I think george 's challenge again is to shift out of this risk narrative perhaps mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. people don 't we are woefully uh, unable to appreciate risk and move to other kinds of frames maybe so
1: I think the the other thing that uh the, the recent cognitive research is showing is that the processes of disattention may, yeah. if anything, be more important than the processes of attention. Right. So the things which alert us to risk is one aspect. But the only way we can survive in, a, in a, the, the information-saturated world that we live in, sitting here facing a room but, but may, under historic conditions, have contain as many people as I might have met in my entire life in a hunter-gatherer group, and then going out into the street and dealing with San Francisco and dealing with the whole world and, heaven knows, watching American television. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or an American football game where it's like, well, <laughs> is the game happening or isn't it happening? What, I just, I <laughs> um, so uh, we are extremely adept at not paying attention to things or indeed just going, OK, I, I don't need to worry about that anymore. We have an inbuilt bias to disregard things just to keep ourselves sane. So it's partly that climate change doesn't carry the things that trigger that sense of attention, but it's also partly that it has a number of things which trigger our disattention. And one of those is, like I said at the very beginning, my experience of being moved by climate change and then finding that no one was talking about it. Yeah. And that triggers disattention. You just go, well, this is, this is not happening out in the wider social realm, and therefore it doesn't exist right.
0: Climate change has been framed as, a, as an issue for future generations. I'd like to talk about children. Uh, John Oliver, the, the comedian, said you know, we can't be trusted with a future tense. Uh, and, and clearly we're not doing so well for stewarding for future generations. Is that a useful frame, George Marshall? You said climate is here and now. It's not about polar bears and grandchildren. Yeah. Let's talk about th- whether that responsibility for children, uh, if that pulls on some strong evolutionary impulses yeah. in ourselves.
1: And the answer to that is yes it should if we already believe in the thing that, 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 that is being that is that is being pulled on. The research is fascinating on this. There it is when you actually look across the whole society and you account for you account for the variables of, of education and education and gender and class and, and politics and so on, you find that actually consistently people with out children will express greater concern about climate change than people with, wow. of, the same, of the same group. But I, I wouldn't want to generalise across the whole world, but I certainly know that this is the case in Canada and Britain and in America. Not by a large margin, but by enough to suggest that there is something which is going on there which is leading people with children to suppress it. Of course, what happens is people who care about climate change care deeply about climate change and their children. People who do not care about climate change seem to actively reject that because it contains a moral challenge. And, of course, face of a moral challenge, you really seek to to, uh, to disavow that, push it away. And then, of course, there's a large area of people in the middle who don't deal or talk about, with, about climate change at all. People without children are markedly reluctant to talk about climate change. They have some of the lowest indices of conversations about climate change. Young women who have children are the social group of all but are least inclined to talk about climate change. So I think there's two things there. There's one thing which is very interesting, which shows that this is very complex, and the way we engage with this, is all goes through uh, is all evaluated by these, uh, by these moral challenges and whether we can handle it and whether we, whether, we, uh, whether we feel that we have a recourse to action, which we haven't yet touched on. But I think the other thing which shows is that we are all extremely biased in our interpretation, not just of climate change, but what we think of winning arguments on climate change. So my, my campaigner friends are utterly persuaded that things that work for them are the winning arguments. And I always say, well, actually, that's almost proof that it's the worst possible way of talking about it, because you are so unusual. <laughs> you, have, you have no idea of what's working out wider.
0: Decker Ketner, children pull on some strong evolutionary impulse to protect.
2: Yeah, our... no, and I, I think this is, we, I mean, absolutely. I think parents, um, it's hard to talk about climate <clears throat> change to kids because there's a, a, an apocalyptic dimension to it. It's catastrophic. When I had the conversations about it with my daughters, uh, literally one time it triggered an anxiety attack because, ah, you know, the world's coming to an end. But I think that's going to change, and in particular for a couple of kinds of data. And what we're learning in the health sciences is climate change is going to damage the nervous systems of people around the world, right? Mm -hmm. So we're starting to... uh, If anybody's been to Beijing, as my research team recently did, and the air quality there and what it's doing to the health distribution of those individuals, it's clear. What we're finding in our lab at UC Berkeley, in partnership, we're doing a project with the Sierra Club, is uh, one of the strongest predictors of a healthy immune system is having a a healthy environment around you, a natural environment actually affects their nervous system. That health argument, and those data are expanding, will be very compelling to parents, as they always are, right? That this is about the life expectancy of my child. And I think, I think we'll be there in five years, and, and that'll provide a different kind of platform for this discussion.
0: You talk about pollution, <clears throat> excuse me, in Beijing, it brings up the idea of severe weather. There's been severe weather, whether it's uh, Katrina, Sandy, the uh, record monsoons, uh, typhoons in the Philippines, droughts, floods. Hmm. Uh, George Marshall, do people then take that and say, wow, climate change is here, I better do something? Or do they say, well, that wasn't so bad? The, the, you know, the New York subway flooded with yeah. the Atlantic Ocean. It's gone now. Have we all forgotten? We, just, we can just adapt to these things and, and keep on our merry lifestyle.
1: So you, you, you warned me you were on jargon alert, but I'll introduce an important phrase uh, from cognitive psychology, which is biased assimilation. Yeah. The bias is for what happens is when you have an existing point of view, you, 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 you bring in around it the evidence in order to support your existing view. And this is clearly what happens around people's attitudes to uh, extreme weather events. People who are inclined to accept that the weather is changing and, inclined to, and therefore inclined to accept with it the entire package, which, as we've said before, is a, a serious package requiring major change in the way we live and, and, yeah. and the attitude of the world, most definitely see uh, extreme weather events as associated, even when the scientific evidence isn't that strong, that they're directly caused by climate change. And, and the converse is true. We, we see time and time again that uh, the strongest correlation of people's attitude to extreme weather events comes down with the political and partisan, you know, the, 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 the political identity of the people who are saying it. What was particularly surprising to me in the research for this book was I had an opportunity to go and speak to extreme weather uh, survivors in America. I, I spoke with people in... Uh, in Central Texas, where in the town of Bastrop, where a third of them, the, uh, the houses burnt down. Huge wildfires under extreme heat conditions, uh, the hottest temperatures ever experienced in Bastrop County. Um, and also along the coast of New Jersey. And I did a string of interviews, and, and people were very... Uh, what they wanted to tell me about was how uh, validating the experience was in terms of their sense of community, how amazingly generous and warm people were. This, uh, people do come together under conditions of extreme weather events. And then when they stay on in the area, they're voting in favor of the area. It's a positive vote for a positive outcome in the future. They are not in a position to want to take on board the possibility that this might be a regular occurrence and get worse. So
0: severe weather builds community and makes people stronger. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Keltner?
1: It, it does,
2: but regrettably, it also triggers this amazing capacity we have, which you nicely document in your book, which is, and has been documented in other kinds of responses to catastrophes is we rationalize the experience and and justify the status quo and we quickly say you know well I, I know i live right on the hayward fault and tore up my house but berkeley's precious and i'll stay and i'll i'll be here so i think it's another one of these complex biases that the movement if you will has to really counter
1: one of the one of the people i interviewed in the book is paul Slovic, who's the world expert on socially well, on the social construction of risk um, And I said, surely, Paul, climate change does meet the criteria that you identify for what should make people very concerned. It contains very, very dramatic events. Uh, It contains a fear. These are things of which people feel a a lack of control, but the ultimate causes are technological. These are all of the issues he identified as making people terrified, for example, of um, nuclear power stations, like Three Mile Island, of these kinds of events. And he said, yes, but following what what you said, Dakin, he says, yes, but the problem is that it comes in a form that is nonetheless familiar to people. But yeah. an extreme weather event may be very extreme, but it is still a weather event. Yeah. He said, if, if it turned the sky purple, it might feel differently. But <laughs> the problem is the problem is that not we are both socially, but we are, also, um, we are also, from an evolutionary point of view, adapted to deal with these kinds of things, and we are extremely adaptive. And part of that adaptive coping is the way that we all come together and we rebuild. Right. And so already those narratives are in place, which makes it hard for us to recognize that there is a consistently building threat.
0: We're talking about psychology and and communication at Climate One today. Our guests are George Marshall, author of the book, Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change, and Dacher Keltner, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about a couple of uh, fables, uh, long-held narratives. The Boy Who Cried Wolf and Chicken Little. How do those look (laughs) (laughs) uh, in a climate context? (laughs)
1: I guess you're asking me. George Marshall. Case, you, know? <laughs>
0: um,
1: you know, the interesting thing about the boy who cried wolf is he was right. <laughs> you know, we, we forget that when we hear the story.
0: The wolf is there. Yeah, the wolf is there. The wolf came and the wolf came and ate
1: all the sheep. The wolf was there. The problem with the boy who called wolf was he became a distrusted communicator yeah. because he kept crying. The, the wolf are coming, the wolves are coming, the wolves are coming. And then everyone went, ah, oh, we're not paying any attention to you anymore. And then the wolves came. So, although although Aesop frames it as uh, a story about lying, it's actually a story about communicator trust. Um, If we we keep saying, it's the end, it's the end, and again, with with Chicken Little, of course, it's the end, and it's the end, the sky is falling, then um, there is a danger with that, that the trust of a communicator is lost. I'd say also, both of these stories are interesting. Um, They're they're also interesting parables about social conformity. So, um, Mm -hmm. both... Uh, the Boy Who call, Called Wolf is the idea of, of the outsider who is calling on something. And, and outsiders who call on things are given credibility. It's interesting. We just assume everybody follows everybody else, but they are. Same thing in Chicken Little. You know, like Chicken Little. This one person says, I've heard something and this is, this, is, this, is, this is, you know, the sky is falling. And that person then creates a social conformity amongst people who follow And What's interesting in the way that the story builds is that one person says to another, says to another, says to another, and then this thing that is without evidence becomes a social fact. It's one of the things I talk about in the book that actually, you know, we think of climate change as being scientific facts. <laughs> Although, to be honest, scientists are very wary about that word fact. But we think of this as being based on scientific facts, but actually it's about social facts. So, Chicken Little is about, is about the, the social facts that are generated through a rumor that gets, that, that gets shared between people. And it goes back really to that thing that socially shared narratives can be way more powerful than uh, the evidence behind them. Yeah.
0: There's another person quoted in the book, uh, Bob Inglis, former Republican congressman from North Carolina. He's been on the yep. stage at Climate One. He was tossed out of Congress in part because he stood up and said, I'm a Republican. I, I accept climate science. He was actually converted by his daughter. He was hmm. a climate change skeptic. Yep. His daughter, high school daughter, came to him and said – Dad, you got to look at this. He did, uh, and George Marshall. You quote him in the book as saying, "Listening to Greens is like seeing a doctor who says, oh my gosh, that's the biggest melanoma I've ever seen.'" So, <laughs> but how can people who are concerned about this, who are emotionally connected to climate change, communicate it with people without being a prophet of doom?
1: Yeah. yeah, it's actually interesting. When Bob was talking, he also said that we were we were seen as being. Uh, uh, gray ponytail bedwetters who get on knickers in a twist. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yeah, OK, that's interesting. That's, that's I, I, said, I, I said, Bob, I'm not going to tell you what we say about people like you and your friends. <laughs> 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 that's, Bob's got a good sense of humour, he? he's, he's a good guy. But um, it, is, it, is, it is true that there are problems, there are problems of telling people about how serious it is, and that the, the more serious things become, the harder it is to communicate it. Um, and I, I have to admit that even as, a, as a somebody who does communications for a living, I do not have a clear resolution for this. It is a constant debate within the, within the environmental community and people who are trying to do this about: do we just, do we, do we actually talk about this in terms of the seriousness of the threat, hoping that we can trigger that threat response? Certainly, maybe through a narrative rather than just, just presenting the data, um, or. Do we realize that there's a point that people may not get triggered by that and that they may just simply go into a kind of a, a, a disavow mode? Yeah. Similarly, so where people say, you know what, we don't need to talk about that at all. We can just simply talk about the opportunities. We can talk about the benefits of a low-carbon economy. We don't need to talk about that. I'm afraid I have to say I think that this is just an area where individual communicators in their own groups will just have to find... Yeah. We'll just have to find a balance. But I think what is interesting is that the nature of the threat, and again going back to this point about narratives, of how the story is told around the threat is what will mobilise people. So different threats register in different ways for different people. And really it's about pulling out both the positive benefits of, of, the, uh, of the changes that we need to make and the threats in ways which speak clearly to the world views of the people we're speaking to. Not assuming that... You know the the Amazon burning down or Bangladesh going underwater or polar bears dying is something which is going to trigger with somebody who's just trying to put food on their table. Maybe for them it's going to be something which is much more direct and local in impact and concern of their community
0: Dakar Keltner, how do you look at that balance between hope and fear as a psychologist and researcher?
2: Well I mean I think that we've we 've detailed that uh, the the fearful quality of this risk, but then the the disavowal of fear that that most of us have because of Psychological reactions to fear, but I also think that there's uh, people respond very powerfully to hope and to elevating narratives. Uh, we know in the persuasion literature, so I take a great deal of hope in a lot of the sort of social behaviors that are taking place. Be it more people in the barrier riding the bicycles, people shopping locally, some of the classic issues in in this, this field. And one of the things I just wanted to elaborate upon um, that George was talking about, and it really is a challenge in the book, is you know, the politicization of, of this issue makes it hard to talk about with a right. lot of people. Uh, and, one, and you know, across the book, you see these stunning examples of how people just will not make it a conversational topic, climate change. But what we know is, um, is and, and from studies, of, for example, of social networks, is that to the extent that people just make it an everyday part of their social conversation, talk about different practices that they're engaged in, what you see in studies of neighborhoods is those Habits are picked up very quickly by other people. So one theme of our day today is really sort of the emotional themes to the narratives. The other that comes out of your book very clearly is talk about it. Just make it part of family conversation today
1: uh, and in your community. follow up on that?
0: Sure. George Marshall.
1: Yeah. um, So in parallel to this process of attention and disattention that I I said we have, there's also... um, a process of conversation and non conversation. Right. And for a long time we've been thinking that the non conversational climate change is just an absence of conversation. But it's clear that it isn't, and there's a growing body of evidence to show that it actually has its own shape and form, but there is a, a very socially created, socially reinforced non conversation which is happening. And you know, Life is, life is an experiment after all and I'm sure any of you who care about climate change when you go and you, you talk with your friends or family or people who are not within the same right. maybe the same politics or worldviews views yourself you'll find this conversation, it just dies yeah. you, just, you just put it out there <laughs> and you say, I think this drought is climate change and when he watches this conversation just withers, <laughs> and, withers and dies or it just mysteriously just starts shooting off in a different direction <laughs> and uh, those people who have studied this have made analogies with the same way we have socially constructed silence around things which are far more morally challenging, like human rights abuses, but entire societies can can enter into non non discussed and non negotiated collective contracts about what can and cannot be recognized and what it 's appropriate to talk about. I really think climate change is one of these areas like uh, like uh, Previous struggles over um, over social rights, uh, disability, um, sexual abuse, for example, where there is a socially constructed silence that has to be confronted. We, we, know, we know a third of people uh, in recent polling couldn't recall a single conversation they'd ever had with anyone about climate change. And the vast majority of everyone else only talks about it with very close family and friends and, indeed, scarcely at all. So, yes, I think the greatest... One of the greatest opportunities, and one of the kind of like take-homes from conversations like this, is to recognise we all have powers as actors, as David was saying, but we all, in various ways, influence the social norm of people around us. Right. And that so we have to be open with this. And if we're convinced about this, we have to say, "I'm convinced. I'm convinced," and just and wear that openly in our in our own social groups
0: the identity can be very strong. One thing we haven't talked about is actions,
1: individual action.
0: Right. How yes. significant is it to compost, buy electric car, to live a green lifestyle, make green consumer choices? George Marshall, are those significant in terms of identity and culture, or are they trivial?
1: I think they're hugely important for our, our, our personal consistency in terms of dealing with this issue. Um, I think if, if as... So let, let's assuming now that I'm speaking to a concerned about climate change. I say if you're concerned about climate change and you recognise that there is a moral challenge built within us, so I think you have to face up to it and recognise that we... You have a, to have an internal consistency that you have to, to recognise that in terms of the way that you personally live. Because otherwise you're creating little areas of bounded silence within yourself. My, my colleagues in the environmental movement are... They, they're very happy to talk about climate change, they're very uncomfortable to t- talking about personal flying. <laughs> there's, a, there's a socially negotiated silence often around aspects of their own lifestyle, because, yeah. um, you know, and I flew here as well, and I'm quite open about it, but I, you know, but I had to, but it was, a long, it was a long personal struggle to make that decision. So I think we, we do have to do it. It's not just a matter of walking the walk. It's also vital for our own, our own our credibility as communicators. I think you know, we kind of, we, 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 we denigrated the people who pointed out our fuel bills as if they were like actively undermining somebody who was campaigning on climate change. Of course that was politicized. But it's also understandable. People people inspect integrity from communicators, but ultimately how are they gonna how are they gonna judge the quality of what they say? So I feel that's really the basis for it. And also, not to underestimate, as uh, underestimate, like I was saying earlier, the importance of the, these social messages that we put out through our own behaviour. Yeah. You know, the, the thing which gets people installing uh, photovoltaics on their roof is the fact that they see the people around them doing it. It's as simple as that. It's not the leaflet or calls, uh, calls to action on climate change or polar bears. It's the fact that other people who they know and they like and they respect are doing it. And it's that social norm which generates the change.
0: And what have you done in Wales, in your own lifestyle, other than flying here, you got solar panels in Wales? Do they have the sun, sunshine in Wales? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, the, the solar panels rust before you get any power out of them. No, actually, strangely, we have solar panels. We have solar panels right across Wales because the government is actively encouraging people to do it. And again, it's very interesting. Uh, in my own local community, I, I, uh, I noticed that people have been fighting against wind farms who have solar panels all over their roof. It's very interesting. People are happy to have the solar panels because it's incentivized and they see a chance to get something that there's a personal gain. So there's a local narrative which speaks very well to people's sense of individuality uh, and you know, and a chance and thriftiness, which is a strong quality where I come from. And people resist the wind farms because they see them as being imposed by, an external, by external corporations who want to extract the resources and make money out of them. So it's, it's all entirely about entirely about how we, uh, how we build it. And yes, in, in answer to your questions, yes, I'm doing the very best I can to insulate my house. I have a, I, I heat it entirely with wood pellets and, and so on. Um, but that's also important for me to say to people, actually, I realise how hard this stuff is. Yeah. Because there's a real tendency to go out there and say, yeah, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. Well, I can tell long stories about how hard it is and how the struggle is against the bureaucracy to get these things done. Um, because, you know, we need to share that personal experience, right?
0: Dacker Keltner, how about your low-carbon lifestyle? Actually, low-carbon. George ports out in his book that "low" is a is a bad word to use because it's considered low class. <laughs> There's all sorts of things about mm, low. Right. So your your highly yeah lifestyle. Your high-oxygen
1: lifestyle.
0: High, <laughs> <there> you <go. laughs> That's a good. <laughs>
2: well, you know, it includes what what a lot of the great sources of wisdom recommend, which is avoiding the car and biking and walking and buying local. You know, reusing in terms of. And recycling, um, and I think that you know one of the important things we've learned in the scientific study of social movements is that, as Desmond Tutu said, it often begins with minor actions of single individuals, and then there are all these dynamic properties that converge that shift social systems, and and I have hope that these kind of small actions will aggregate into something different.
1: But also, let's not, let's not think that, that action is entirely about what you do or buy. Because I think one of the, one yeah. of the dangerous fallacies created by the, the whole we've talked about climate change is that, that action on climate change has been pushed on us as if we're just individual consumers making the right ethical choices in terms of what we buy, which I think is a very, um, uh, a very cynical, uh, market-driven manipulation yeah. of, of, of what should be happening. And, of course, ultimately extremely alienating if you say to people your only power that you have is through the purchasing decisions you make, it's not about the connections between people. I think the real low-carbon choices I make are in terms of the investment I make into my friends and my family and the community around me. And if we talk about, if we talk about the solutions to climate change resting with the stronger bonds that we have between people, about doing things locally, about uh, supporting the local economy, uh, about doing things within our community, we're creating a story which is much more appealing yeah. uh, across the board. You know, when we did focus groups across Wales, we found that these, um, these exciting stories that people love about the excitement of a new low-carbon revolution and how we're all going to have battery-powered cars and we're going to have solar panels all over our roofs absolutely bombed with a large majority of people who, let's face it, are struggling just to, just to yeah. keep up their mortgage payments. We've really got <laughs> to avoid messages around climate change that just says no, it's a different kind of consumerism. Yeah.
0: We're talking about climate change at climate yeah. one. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Dacher Keltner, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, and George Marshall, the author. Before we go to audience questions, there's one part of the book where I think there's a there's a mistake, and that is you write that sex is a carbon-neutral activity. Now, now that may be true in Britain, but I don't care. <laughs> But here you think about all the food and alcohol and all, all of the, <laughs> the fossil fuels that go into the food and alcohol, the, you know. Leather involved. All right, so. <laughs> Leather, yeah. Okay. Yeah, never mind the rubber. <laughs> Look, let's go to our yes. uh, audience questions. Welcome to Climate yes. One. I was wondering if you could address, perhaps briefly, what role the government is playing in communicating. It seems that when people suffer um, earthquake or superstorms, that the government at every level is right there. And do you think they would look at it differently if they knew that the state was not going to come in and FEMA was not going to come in, and that they would be, to some extent, bailed out? Good luck like to tackle that. The nanny states there for us, George Marshall.
1: You know, isn't it? I find it really curious. And it goes to show how complex these things are. That right. people who are so utterly resistant in, in their political worldview right. to government are so extremely insistent. that government comes in and, yeah. and supports them in these moments of crisis. I think it just goes to show that people are very rather than saying we can assume how people feel about things, but actually people's positions are uh, are, are indeed very emotionally driven. Um, I I think there is a real opportunity there for the government, for everyone who is involved with these things, to make a point about longer-term adaptation and resilience around all of these extreme weather events. We know that whilst it might be hard to talk about climate change in terms of uh, you know, emissions and responsibility and lifestyle and all of these things which are challenging to people, we know that if we talk about this as something which is now happening and is real that we need to adapt to, we need to protect and prepare ourselves for, but we have, we're speaking there to the, the values which are much, much broader about people coming together, again coming together in their communities and working together to protect and defend the values and the things which are important to them. I would like to see a lot, lot more of that.
3: Next question, welcome. I wanna elaborate on this individual action question. It's my own personal belief we have a little bit of an overemphasis on people's individual actions. We, we tend to promote the solution to climate change as everybody's behavior changing. Mm. When in fact, perhaps another way of looking at the situation is that there's a larger system at play. Humanity itself is an emergent system. Civilization as an organism perhaps is consuming the resources of the planet. So the the actions we need are perhaps larger system, societal kind of changes, yet we so emphasize what individuals need to do or walk their talk, and there's a little bit of a disconnect between the emotional energy we're supposed to put on that in that conversation versus what we can mathematically say is our, our actual contribution to the problem. The question being then, what is the potential to shift the focus more yeah. to to the collective action and recognize this issue around the overemphasis on the individual
2: action. Dr. Keltner? Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges that, that George brings up is, and you're absolutely right in, in the ontological, philosophical sense, that it, it is a systemic problem, but we've got to find narratives that appeal to particular cultural mindsets. And I think the individual action is very appealing, and a lot of data support this, to a kind of a more Western European individualistic mindset, I think in China, it's going to be much easier to implement broad social interventions responsive to climate issues that are about duty, right? or about advancing the collective. But but that argument, uh, although right, it ha- is going to face resistance. I think in in parts of the West. So it's a, a kind of a we need multiple approaches to this.
1: And and on that theme of multiple ap- approaches, I, I also want to be very clear that although in the book I'm trying to out outlay the the. Uh, the psychological map, as it were, of how we engage with this. I really want to avoid saying we can only talk about it one way or another, or that there's only one set of solutions or another set of solutions, because clearly there is an argument that we need a, a huge scale of systemic change on this. And that if we just focus on, well, it's just a matter of finding the right words to speak to trigger people's psychology, that, that isn't going to work against the, the, the overwhelming scale of this. I think we do have to deal with people's personal attitudes and behavior because I think ultimately in a democratic society, it is what happens at the higher levels in terms of, in terms of corporate and government decision making is built on the attitudes of people at the bottom. But I don't, I don't want to rule that out. And I actually think that the, the excessive focus on personal behavior has been a slate of hand, actually, of mm. people who are in positions of yeah. power and authority to say, you know what, it's your fault. You sort it out, it's your fault. We're, we're just going to keep business as usual, but this is all somehow going to be mediated through the market mechanism of your personal choices. I mean, think that's, <laughs> mean, that's a serious piece of misinformation we should be quite yes. angry about.
0: Let's go to our next guardian question in Climate One.
1: Hi, my name
2: is David Steyer. My question is that I came to the realization that climate change is almost a moral issue. It's not an intellectual or an emotional issue. And I think about, you know, the struggle for civil rights in the South and how we were able to change as a society and make deep, extensive changes. And I'm wondering if there's been research about other social movements and how they've been successful in adopting change and what that can do for climate change. Yeah, no, I mean, there are two great observations embedded in your question. One um, is uh, what makes social movements successful. And, you know, here we have a Really interesting social scientific, a historical study of all the different kinds of social movements, protest movements against police issues, like in Ferguson, wage issues, empl- uh, employment issues. And, you know, George is right. I mean, it is the passions that drive social change. And that raises the challenge for the climate change movement, which is, you know, wh- what passions are really going to move people. Uh, and then the second issue, again, is that each of these. Uh, social movements uh, really revolves around different moral themes. And one of the things we've learned from moral psychology that you cited earlier mm. is there are many different moral themes that will resonate given your particular cultural background, your temperament and the like. And and that, again, is another multi-approach, multi-language challenge is, for some people, it really is about uh, harm and care. For other people, it's about cleanliness and
1: purity. Um, but passion is, is a good bet. You know, uh, One of the people I interviewed for the book, although uh, um, I actually kept that interview for another piece of work, was um, Adam Hochschild, who wrote a fantastic book, Breaking the Chains, about the history of the slave movement, which started, as he described it, with seven people sitting in a room, deciding that they were going to end the most profitable and most vested interest trade in human history, the trade in slaves, and achieving it within their lifetime. But what was interesting about those people was that many of them were coming from what we would regard as being deeply conservative backgrounds. Mm-hmm. That movement was built on, a, on a, a moral crusade that worked its way through the British churches of people saying, this is wrong and we're going to stand up and we're going to oppose this. We'll also say that it was based on, a, and this is the challenge for climate change, it was based on clear enemies with the intention to cause harm. Yeah. It was based on very, very powerful, deeply moving personal human stories. So I think we do have to find ways where we can reach a balance And the balance, as I said, is a hard one where we can can manage to find the things, as Dr. was saying, which are deeply moving and compelling to people without falling into the trap of making them so particular to one worldview or another that actually we alienate some of the people who should be supporting the campaign.
0: Robert Kennedy Jr. has written about slavery transition. It didn't tank the economy, as a lot of opponents said it would. Also, George Marshall points out that Martin Luther King's speech is, I have a dream, not I have a nightmare. So the hope and fear. Let's let's
2: go to our next question. Uh, My name is Peter Joseph, and I work with Citizens Climate Lobby. And the one thing that we haven't talked about this whole time is money. Mm -hmm. And the factor of money, the fact that all of us burning fossil fuels are getting away with polluting for free. because all those external costs are not reflected in the price. Mm -hmm. And money is the most powerful human motivator on the planet. Maybe love is second. But um, (laughs) what would happen to people's thinking and their aversion to taking on this issue if they knew that we could harness the world's economy to solve this problem with a little tweak Mm -hmm. in the tax code that put a price on carbon Mm -hmm. and then took all that money and gave it right back to people so they could afford the energy transition
0: that we need. Financial incentives, we'd like to tackle that. Decker Keltner, money, motivator?
2: Uh, It is a big motivator, but uh, I think the social uh, benefits of of pro-social behaviors we're finding in in different kinds of laboratory studies are just as powerful, often more powerful. So I think we kind of have to shed ourselves of that mindset. But I'd love to hear... George's response to your policy question. Yeah, but
1: I also, yes, I also want to, I want to emphasize that. As we know, money is, money is actually tied up with the values of what money is and what it does. Does it, does it bestow status? Does it, uh, is it something which enables you to, do, to be a better parent or a better mother or, or be more successful in your society? So money is actually often the, the medium of, of values, and there might be a way of going straight to those values. I will say, though, having just come down yesterday from British Columbia, British Columbia has had a, a, a very interesting experiment along exactly the lines of what you're saying, a policy experiment with that. And there is an opportunity, I think, in, in policy terms to be able to to make a transfer from put, putting money on the price of fuel but making it a revenue-neutral revenue, a revenue neutral tax and not building more government but actually uh, returning it to people in some way or doing something with it which is not directly related, just pumping into government coffers, around which I am convinced that there's a possibility of building... Um, Cross-partisan agreement. I, I think it's. Uh, I personally, although stepping outside my book, I think that it's been a, a policy disaster. But we have followed these, um, these market-based strategies, which seem to me far more based on a political worldview and an ideology, yeah. when actually, on any evidence, that they work well. Next question. Oh, that's open the can of worms. Yeah. How about it? that? Yes, there's <laughs> too many people in the queue. You can't do that. <laughs> Speaking of other possible frames, one of our leaders. Is talking about shifting the
2: public climate paradigm and policy from fear increasing to goal
1: oriented. Uh, thinking that climate work over the last 40 years has generally been focused on uh, fear leading to collective action at some point.
0: So let's get their response to that. Goals rather than sort of emotions.
2: I think it's really sound. I mean, we know, you know, that people have been interested in what can change people's minds for a long time in the persuasion literature, and uh, a certain amount of fear works, but once you cross a midpoint, it's bad news. People freeze up. We also know goals are subserved by big parts of our nervous system, like the dopamine system, which gets people doing things. There are a lot of terrific social psychological studies showing just get people thinking about specific goals, uh, and and they'll take action. So I think it's it's this kind of frame switch that, George has been encouraging us that that would be useful.
0: Just one footnote: the international negotiations on climate are moving away from sort of one one treaty where everybody has to be bound by it, for each country having their individual goals and and kind of in that direction. Let's have our next question.
2: Um, quick question on media coverage of climate change in hmm. the United States. Um, you know, if a show like Meet the Press has discusses climate change, they have. One representative of yeah, pro climate sure. change and one uh, climate a change case. denial, and they are considering that balanced coverage because they have both. They both have five minutes. Um, what, what are your thoughts on media coverage of climate change?
0: George Marshall, you point out in the book that we don't uh, survey economists to, to, uh, to say whether there's a recession, but somehow this 97% of uh, <laughs> yeah. scientists versus 3% of scientists happens in climate, doesn't happen in other realms.
1: Yeah. Yes, the, well, the, the language of science, which understandably is the professionalism of science is about expressing due caution, of course, enters into a whole, into a whole discussion. and. and but it is a manipulated discussion. I mean, this is the area where we should recognise that there are some very powerful vested interests and some very serious money which is put into this in order to create the sense of, uh, of a false debate. And um, I, think that, I think that the media does have a, a serious responsibility for this, for actually being um, seriously negligent in the way that they have portrayed the level of, uh, of the consensus on this, uh, seriously irresponsible and not showing the, um, the, the personal political affiliations for people who have, they have on yeah. their programmes. And I really think it's one of the things which we as citizens can do, is if we think that there is bias fair to actually go directly to them and say, say this, is, this is not acceptable. But I think there's actually an even bigger concern of the media, which is the non-conversation about climate change. Mm. The absence of conversation. Sometimes completely, 2010, almost completely disappeared. There was almost no coverage at all. And I think this, mm. for anyone who's in the media, I think it's very important for when we get things which point to climate change, like extreme weather events, for example, to go out there and to get an opinion, is this climate change or not? And let's keep that discussion up and
0: The Weather Channel and some outlets are increasingly doing that. We're talking at Climate One today with George Marshall, an author and Dacher Keltner, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Next question.
2: How could the scientific community change its narrative, the chicken little narrative, to change the social narrative? Or do you think it's even their responsibility? Yeah, I mean, so what this issue is faced in different scientific realms, and one of the things we've learned is uh, facts become highly polarizing, and even the word fact and statistical evidence and people shut down, right, even though that they're the foundation of our discipline, and we need great storytellers, and the great storytellers like Charles Darwin in the field of evolution, uh, that was really a a fact-based narrative that shifted Victorian mindsets to really a radically different set of beliefs, and, and the data are really clear that great stories uh, are what convince people. Uh, they can be fact-based, but they have to be character-driven stories. I,
1: I will say on that, my, my organization in Oxford works quite a lot with uh, climate scientists. We, we help advise and we speak a lot with them. And one of the things I'm always keen to see them do is to create more of a story about themselves and about their work. They're doing very, uh, they're doing very sometimes very brave and exciting work in the far corners of the world... Okay. They underestimate the importance that we place in our communicators of knowing and trusting our communicators and the integrity of our communicators. So an awful lot of science communications is is absent of individuals. And I love it when scientists step forward. They are still honest and faithful to the professionalism of their work, but they are also stepping forward in terms of expressing their own personal conviction and persuasion and their own backstory about who they are. When they step out from behind the curtain, they say, this is who we are.
0: Something the other side has done very very well Indeed, uh, yeah. with coal miners or that, that sort of thing. Well, and uh, their
1: own scientists, of course, like people who seek to undermine the science, are constantly promoting the integrity and the intelligence and the extreme professionalism of the people on their side.
0: A question from the audience at Climate One.
1: I'm
3: curious. With uh, Communication, I think, is changing pretty dramatically now with the Internet and social media. And you haven't really mentioned that at all as, as any kind of... Uh, attitude changer or uh, a way of progressing toward progress here. And I'm wondering how that might uh, play a role in changing people's attitudes and coming together for...
0: That well,
2: I, I think there are really, really exciting new studies that show that elevating narratives, right, elevating stories that have some inspiration that's built into them, goals, if you will, are what are viral, right? And there are very interesting stories about that. And I think that dovetails with one of the central themes today is find those great narratives
1: that that move people and inspire action. And one of the other themes is that people take as fact, as truth, what they see for people around them in their own social networks, seeing and holding. So that means that these new forms of social media become extremely powerful as ways of conveying new forms of of socially held facts and new social norms. So please, again, I'd urge anyone who cares about this, please use these things and share your personal conviction and persuasion on climate change with the people in your own networks. And don't underestimate how important and powerful that is. We tend
0: to have a reliance on facts. We'll close here with just one quote in the book uh, by George Marshall from I believe it's Clive Hamilton who says denial is due to a surplus of culture rather than a deficit of information we have to end it there I'm Greg Dalton we've been talking with Dr. Keltner professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and George Marshall author of the book don't even think about it why our brains are wired to ignore climate change free podcasts of this and other climate one programs are available on the iTunes store thank you to our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and on the radio thank you all for coming mm-hmm. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editors Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.